I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew 23. Thank you. This is the last of a four-part series on the overall theme of Matthew. We're going through the book of Matthew in our morning series. We did 110 sermons in Revelation, so I would anticipate uh, more than that because there's uh, six more chapters in Matthew. No one really knows for sure how the books of the New Testament ended up in the order that we have them in today. However, there are a number of ancient lists of books in uh, varying orders, and in those lists, either Matthew or John is always placed first. Uh, And that's probably because those are the two Gospels that were directly authored by uh, apostles. But actually, the majority of those lists place Matthew first, and the reason for that is probably because it was assumed by the ancient church to be the first, and there does seem to be good evidence for supporting that idea. Regardless, it was by the providence of God that it is the first book in our New Testament today. And we can be assured that the order of all the New Testament books really was superintended by God, even though they were written over a period of about 75 years. Now, Matthew is really quite natural as the first book in sequence because it most naturally succeeds the Old Testament. It's a gospel that was addressed to the Jews which is why we see the first approach of Jesus of Nazareth to those people in Matthew. It's also a book that gives us the account of where things stand between him and those people, as it does to this very day. I mean, how do you account for the fact that he came to the only people on earth who were given the promises related to his coming, And yet those were the same people who rejected him. What's the explanation of that? Why do those conditions continue until the present time? As Matthew records the events that lead to that rejection, we can begin to understand why it happened in his day. And in understanding that, we can also understand why the same situation persists between Jesus and many men and women today. This morning, we are going to uh, finish our survey of the message in this gospel, the overall message. And in answering this whole question of why things stand as they do between Jesus and these people, what Matthew recounts is that when Jesus entered the world, he did not do so in a subtle way. Uh, He actually came with a forerunner who announced to those people that God's kingdom had drawn near to them. And the only proper response that he gave them was for them to repent, uh, to entirely change their minds about their values and about their sins. Uh, they needed a, uh, to change their expectations for the future and really change the course of their relationship to God. They needed to respond with a soul-changing repentance that would result in having 
fruitful lives. And then as Matthew continues this story, he tells us that when Jesus himself began his preaching ministry, he also announced the kingdom quite clearly to people. He didn't do it hesitantly, but he spoke with a boldness that was unprecedented in world history. I say that because he was threatening people with eternal damnation if they didn't receive his teaching. And when he finished, you remember that the people didn't argue with him. They spontaneously reacted uh, by having this sense that he, he, he spoke like someone who had the right to say those kinds of things to them, to demand that they listen to him and accept him. And then you remember that he confirmed his teaching by miracles in every conceivable realm. And as a result, uh, there was a great number of people from the Galilean uh, region where he was ministering who followed him around from town to town and out on the mountains and along the, uh, the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it became so crowded that he had to resort to standing in a boat away from the shore lest he be uh, kind of hemmed in and crowded and, and, and the people wouldn't be able to hear his teaching. On another occasion, uh, you remember that the crowds were so packed inside a house that four men uh, actually came up with the idea of climbing onto the roof. And they removed a portion of the roofing material in order to lower a man who was in need to him. That was the kind of popularity that our Lord was enjoying in those early days. Well, with the multiplication of people needing ministry, uh, the Lord saw the need then to multiply His ministers. And you remember uh, that He invested that same miraculous working authority in 12 of His key followers. So now, there were 13 people proclaiming the same message and performing the same uh, miraculous confirmations. Now, you would assume that with this going on, that the entire Jewish nation would be swept right under the reign of the kingdom of heaven. So it really is surprising when you get to chapters 11 and 12 that when Matthew records the real reaction to his ministry, there were those who doubted. Uh, Others debated him. Uh, Others denigrated him in the most blasphemous terms. I mean, they couldn't deny that supernatural things were happening, that he was performing these amazing miracles. They couldn't deny that, and so they had to stoop to reassigning the source. And they said that he really got his power from Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Uh, Beelzebub is an Old Testament term that's taken from Ekron. Ekron was an ancient Canaanite city that was plagued with flies, like Alice Springs. (laughs) It flies everywhere. And so they referred to the god of Ekron, as the god of flies. He gets his power from the prince of flies, they said. Well, our Lord's response was to begin reserving the best of his teaching for the twelve apostles alone and to only teach the crowds in parabolic form, most of which he did not explain. And when he did interpret the parables, it was only in the hearing of the twelve. Well, the result was that he faced increasing opposition In the chapters following uh, Matthew 13, which we looked at uh, last time, uh, records some of that. 
However, at the same time, he was withdrawing from the majority of his teaching. He did continue to appeal to the people through his miraculous works. In fact, uh, two of his greatest miracles uh, in terms of the number of people being affected were performed during this period of time. Uh, You remember it was the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. And then later on, the feeding of 4,000 men, again, plus women and children. If you put those two numbers together, you're really talking about tens of thousands of people who were miraculously fed during those months of the most intense opposition he faced in Galilee. And yet, remarkably, there was still no wholesale repentance. There was only a tremendous amount of interest in being fed by him. They like that part. Well, now we come finally to the last week of his earthly ministry. He and his disciples have made their way south, uh, down to Jerusalem, and along the way, you remember that he has been progressively revealing to them the suffering of the Messiah and the resurrection that will follow. But the disciples' eyes are closed. They, they just cannot take these things in. His suffering and his death does not fit what they have just confessed to be their belief about his person. I mean, he, he is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. How can these events take place in the life of such a person? So you remember from last time that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was inundated with questions from the religious authorities. They were intent on trapping him in his speech. But our Lord, by asking the ultimate question, really silenced them once and for all. He asked them, uh, you know, what do you think or what, what, what do you say about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And you remember that they had no answer for that because the fact was that Psalm 110 said that the Messiah would be David's son. And yet in that same writing, King David refers to his own offspring as his Lord. Well, if the Messiah is David's son, how come David refers to him as the Lord when he says, uh, the Lord, and that's Yahweh, said to my Lord who is also David's son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you want a a modern parallel to that, the closest I could think of would be uh, if it would be like King Charles calling William the king, right? I mean, how can William be the king if he's Charles' son? doesn't make any sense. Uh, And so the Lord quotes that passage in Psalm 110, And from that day forward, Matthew says, nobody dared ask him any more questions. So at this point, we come now to chapter 23, in which the Lord publicly condemns, in the fiercest terms, the hypocritical religious conservatives of his day, the Pharisees. He pronounced woes upon them, and he concluded his indictment with the last verse of Matthew 23. This is how we ended last week when he said to them that from now on their house would be left to them as desolate and they would no longer see him offering himself in this way to them. Of course, they'd see him on the cross, but he would no longer offer himself in this way of imploring 
and teaching and performing miracles for them until, he said, they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a reference, of course, to Zechariah 13 and 14, which will take place in the future. Now, at this point, the Lord and his disciples make their way out to the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. And they stand there and they just observe this whole magnificent temple complex that was being built and was still under construction after 50 years. It's kind of like our building project here. It just never ends, right? And uh, it was finished in uh, 63 AD, by the way. And the Romans tore it down seven years later <laughs> when they uh, destroyed Jerusalem. But I've stood there on the Mount of Olives. I've stood there with some of you when we went to uh, Israel. And even the remains of the Temple Mount, which now houses two famous Islamic mosques, uh, is still a very impressive sight. So in verse 1, the disciples are just kind of pointing out the buildings. And our Lord makes a statement that I think must have just stopped them in their tracks. Verse 2. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, you can just imagine the awkward silence that came after that kind of a statement. I mean, they didn't question this shocking news right away. But when he sat down, it says, the disciples took the opportunity to ask him some questions related to that statement. Three of them, in fact. Those three questions in verse 3 are the key to understanding the greatest prophetic teaching that our Lord gave during His earthly ministry. It's found in Matthew 24 and 25. It's the last teaching section in Matthew. We know it, of course, as the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of Olives. So the, the Olivet Discourse. So how many teaching sections do we have in this gospel? Do you remember? I'll give you a clue. Five. Okay. There's five teaching sections. This is now the fifth and the final one. Now, the gospel of Mark uh, condenses this down into just one chapter, Mark 13. And Luke condenses it into uh, Luke 21, chapter 21. But Matthew gives us the fullest record of the Olivet Discourse. And everything that you have here is an answer to these three questions. So let's just note them for a moment. In verse 3, number 1, tell us when will these things be? What things? Well, the destruction of the temple. Jesus has just been talking about. Number 2, and what will be the sign of your coming? And number 3, what will be the sign of the end or the consummation of the age? Now, it'll help you when you read this discourse if you keep in mind that Luke's gospel gives the fullest record of the Lord's answer to the first question. When will these things happen? The majority of that answer is basically omitted by Matthew, but it's found in Luke. Matthew primarily gives the material 
in which the Lord answers the last two questions. But he answers them in reverse order. Uh, so they were asked one, two. He answers them two, one. So the last question was, what is the sign of the end of the age? Well, that's something I'd like to know as well. I'm sure that's something you would like to know. Uh, the book of Revelation that we just finished recently is filled with the events that take place after the end of the age in which we are living. But when can we assume that it's going to draw near? Well, verses 4 to 14 are an answer to that question. And if you look down at the last words of verse 14, you can see he's finished his answer because it ends with the phrase, and then the end will come. So we know that's the end of his answering that question. But that leaves us with the second question. What is the sign of your coming? Well, that's what he answers next after he finishes giving a detailed overview of the events that are covered in most of the book of Revelation, which are the events that take place. If you look at verse 21, during the great tribulation, he talks about it there. After that, he answers the second question, beginning in verse 30. It says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now just hear that through the ears of these Jewish men. Because you can see he's clearly referring back to Daniel 7.13, which they all knew. We've talked about that many times here. Now, what will it be like when he comes? Well, let's go to chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, or his glorious throne. And, it's, and it says it won't, it won't just be the Jew standing before him, right? Because verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. And then he sorts them into two groups. And notice that there are only two groups. There's no third alternative. And in verse 46, it says, Some will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous, well, they're going to go into eternal life. That's the end of that teaching section. So, I know you'd love to get into it in more detail, but we're just doing a survey, remember? So what is the thrust then of this last great teaching in the Gospel of Matthew? What did it concern and how did it conclude and what is the presentation of Jesus in that teaching? Well, what is he claiming and what were the disciples forced to conclude about the end of the age and about his coming and about the state of affairs when he comes? That's Matthew's presentation. And we'll get to that one day. Now, chapter 26, verse 1 now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And there's that formula that we noted at the end of every teaching section. Uh, so what happens when Jesus finishes these last sayings? Let's just get our chronology here. Look at verse 2. He said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And again, you know, this must have been totally bewildering for his disciples. I mean, think of, think of the teaching he just ended. 
He's coming in the clouds of heaven as Daniel's Son of Man in power and glory. All the angels of heaven will be with Him. Uh, and all the nations will gather around Him. And He's going to divide them into two groups and some of them will go to eternal punishment. Some of them will go to eternal life. Now, now guys, after two days, they're going to be the Passover. Look at the title he uses. And the Son of Man, the same person with power and glory, okay, he's going to be delivered up for crucifixion. I mean, you know, to us, it, it's also clear in the 21st century. But you've got to put, your, put yourself in the shoes of these guys. It must have been the deepest of darkness for them to try and process what he's saying to them. But now, that brings us to chapters 26 and 28, where we have the concluding stories to Matthew's presentation of Jesus the Messiah. So let's take chapters 26 and 27 together, uh, because chapter 28 really kind of functions like the conclusion to the whole book. But you can easily remember the thrust of the events in 26 and 27. If you think of chapter 26 as the chapter when he is tried before Jewish authorities, and chapter 27 is when he's tried before a Roman government. Now, of course, there are other things that happen, but this is what keeps the whole message on its central track. So let's just have a look at that quickly. I want to take you right into the room where Caiaphas is presiding in verse 57 of chapter 26. Now here you're going to find the representatives of the Jewish government, of the religious order, and really the whole Jewish nation. If you're a fly on the wall, this is what you're going to see. Verse 57, the high priest is mentioned. This is the highest religious figure in the nation. If we had a parallel today, it would be like appearing before the Archbishop of Canterbury if you're being tried by the Church of England, or the Pope if you're being tried by the Catholic Church. This is Caiaphas, the high priest. With him are the scribes. These guys are the most intellectual of all the Pharisees. Uh, with them were the elders. These are the most influential and wealthy Jewish men who are not necessarily religious, but they've got influence because they've got status. They've got wealth. In verse 59, the chief priests are there. Now that would include all of the former high priests like Annas, who was the father of Caiaphas and any others who were still alive. That also included the three temple treasurers. That included the captain of the temple guard and the steward or the chief administrator of the whole temple complex. And then finally, you have the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin. These guys are all in that room. And there's just one person who's confronting them with one claim. Now I want to tell you what Matthew does. When you combine the four Gospels, it's apparent that Jesus has already endured a nighttime trial by this time. Matthew does not record this. But there was a conversation that took place between the Lord and Annas, the former high priest. Instead of recording that, Matthew takes you right to the final trial very early the next morning. And on that occasion, he records that Jesus spoke 
only one time. Why? Well, because there's only one issue at stake. So he will not be drawn into any conversation. He will not even give a defense of himself on any secondary issue. I mean, even when they call for these witnesses and you know, their testimony is, is blatantly untruthful, a situation which most men, including myself, would hotly protest as to their innocence, that would be natural. Well, he doesn't say anything. He makes no reply. So now the high priest has to resort to what he does in verse 63 when he puts our Lord under solemn oath and he demands that he either affirm or deny the issue of his identity. Now Annas, the night before, had asked him about his teaching. He asked him about his doctrine. He asked him about his disciples. But remember, the central issue in Matthew is this matter of his identity. At Caesarea Philippi, he made it an issue with his disciples. Remember that? Who, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Okay? Well, who do you say that I am? Well, now the high priest says, I put you under oath by the living God. I mean, you tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And finally, our Lord speaks in verse 64. It is as you said. In other words, you, you have spoken words that are true. Nevertheless, I just want to give you a little more information here. I say to you, hereafter you will see, with your physical eyes, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So you can see this is the only claim that he makes at his Jewish trial. It is his final official word to all of the leadership of that nation. And it is for that reason, and that reason alone, that Matthew recounts that he was condemned. At the end of verse 50, uh, 65, uh, they define that what he just said, well, that's blasphemy. Now, by way of application, I want to ask every person here this morning to face this question of whether his claim is true or their condemnation of him is true. Because I'm telling you, that is the ultimate choice. It's between either his claim or their condemnation of blasphemy. And people have been faced with this choice for nearly 2,000 years as Christians have been attempting to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, just from my experience alone, let me tell you what I've noticed when you put this question to people in so many ways. There's many ways of asking this question. But when you don't give them any other possibility, I mean, you've quoted John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All right, what do they say when they hear something like that? Most of them, they refuse to make a, make a choice at all. They excuse themselves. They say something like, well, I need to think about that. Well, they're confused by it. Uh, they're just not sure. They want to keep their options open, you know. But my point is that it's important for us to bring clarity to this whole issue because when Jesus came to the end of his earthly life, the whole thing was focused down laser sharp 
to this one question, who are you? Now, he didn't leave us many options about himself. It has been rightly observed and long before C.S. Lewis made the comment that one of the options was the one that his own family came to as it's recorded in Mark 3. This was during the days when the multitudes were crowding around him and he went back to his hometown, uh, maybe hoping to get some rest, but they, didn't, they just followed him and he didn't have any time to eat. And uh, you know, His relatives said, well, he's lost his senses. So that would be one option. This is a deranged individual. He, he's simply mad. He's mentally unstable, like some of the Roman emperors who you know, claimed to be deities. I mean, everybody knew it, but no one, no, everyone was afraid to say it. But he just lost his mind. Well, that's a possibility, right? You're dealing with a mentally ill patient and maybe even someone who's demon-possessed as a result of that. Another possibility is the one that is the major view among the Jews today, which is that he was a deceiver. In other words, he knew full well that he was pushing a lie on the nation. And right to the end, he made this huge gamble that he would win, but then he lost the gamble. A third possibility to consider is the one that tends to be the majority view among Protestants today, which is the view that he's not really God, but he was the single greatest example of a human being who has ever lived. And this one is commonly expressed in the idea that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, but he was the Son of God in the same sense that all of us are God's children. Right? Jesus just went further in his relationship to God than anybody else did. So not deity, but yeah, he's the son of God in that sense. It's exactly the opinion the disciples were giving him at Caesarea Philippi. Remember that? People were saying, yeah, man, you're great. Well, you're just like Elijah. They think he's Jeremiah come back from the dead. I mean, at the very least, you've got to be one of the prophets. But we have to understand, of course, that a truthful prophet would not claim to be God. I mean, you can't be a truthful prophet and then threaten people with eternal damnation if they won't accept you as God. Unless, of course, the fourth option is true. And what's that one? Well, you are who you claim to be. Well, the Lord simply closed down the idea that anyone could legitimately or even intelligently arrive at the conclusion that he was merely a man because right to the very end, he claimed to be the Son of God. And that brings us now to chapter 27 and the next test of his claim. The Jews have come to their conclusion. He blasphemes. Our Lord maintains his claim to be the Son of God in the face of their condemnation. Now he's delivered over to the Roman authorities. Look at verse 11. Look at the first question Pilate puts to him. Now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, saying, here it is, are you the king of the Jews? Well, now that's how this gospel began, right? That was the initial announcement. That's who the wise men came looking for. Now Pilate's question, of course, is only coming from a Roman viewpoint, right? When the man has no spiritual interest 
in the ramifications of that answer. But Rome, of course, was intensely interested in any rival to its Caesars. So are you, as the Jews have charged you to be, are you the king of the Jews? Are you competing with Caesar, is really his question. Well, our Lord's answer to him at the end of verse 11 is a simple affirmative. It is as you say. Now, I want to show you what Matthew omits at this point. This is quite interesting. Turn to John 18, and uh, I'm looking at this because one of the ways that we know the distinctive message of a gospel is by comparing it with the other gospels, right? So here is material Matthew could have included in the trial, but he chose not to. Look at John 18.33. We'll pick up where Matthew began his account of this trial. It says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? All right? And what we discover in verse 34 is that Jesus actually answered with more than just the affirmative answer that Matthew records. Uh, now, this is no contradiction. right? We all understand that, I hope. Um, when the gospel writers included material that the others didn't, you know, you know, John's not saying Matthew was wrong, but if you want to get the fullness of a particular discussion or a particular account, we've well, got to combine them together. That's because one writer is taking his material that makes his particular point he's trying to make with the reader, and another writer is choosing material that makes his point with the reader. You know, it's the same, same thing when you talk about the Lord with a lost person. Uh, you would present different facts about him to a man who is in a hospital dying of cancer as you would to, uh, you know, let's say, a priest of, of Hare Krishna on an airplane. You know, be totally different facts. So the gospel writers are adjusting what they in include according to the audience that they're addressing. Well, on this occasion, there was certainly more that he said, and you get our Lord's full response in verse 34 when he turns and he questions Pilate. Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, and he's quite offended by the question. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. So what have you done? Uh, look at verse 36. Jesus answered, and he said more than it, it is as you say, right? Because he clarified the nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, and so on. But you see, Matthew doesn't include that information because the message of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. So the, the, if the question is, are you the king of the Jews? Well, the shorthand answer from the Lord is, well, yes, I am. And in Matthew's account, that's where he wants to keep the focus. On his identity as the king. So back to Matthew 27. You remember that the result of all these proceedings was that our Lord was condemned. And then he was scourged, which Matthew does not include. After he was scourged, there's another interrogation by Pilate. And this one included the question, are you the son of God? Matthew doesn't include that. 
Again, he really keeps the focus on that one question. Are you the king of the Jews? So the Lord is handed over to the soldiers. In verse 29, they gave him a crown. Who did he give a crown to? Uh, They put it on his head. They gave him a scepter, a hollow reed. They knelt before him and mocked him and spat on him. They hail king of the Jews. Matthew does record that. You see? And then he was crucified. Here's what else Matthew records. In verse 37, a criminal charge was written and placed on the cross, as was customary in those days. Uh, When a passerby saw a crucified criminal, the natural question they had was, well, what did he do? So they put it in writing. And in this case, the answer is, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, Matthew does not include the protest of the religious leaders when they went to Pilate and demanded that he change the wording. Remember that? Don't don't write that he's king of the Jews, but you can put down that he said he was king of the Jews. Well, Matthew doesn't include that. Instead, it stands in his gospel as this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So what you have in verses 29 to the end of the chapter is his crucifixion and burial. Uh, Notice verse 62, and again, Matthew is the only one who records this. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, and he must have been really tired of them by now, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that, what do they call him? Deceiver, right? That's what I said. That's been the major opinion among Jews to this day. How that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And you know what? It should be that way today. To this very day. You know, when you visit Jerusalem today, there are graves all over the city. Mount of Olives, Mount Zion, graves are everywhere. Some of those graves belong to some very famous people. Some ancient kings, uh, some very well-known prophets from the past. You can go up to them. They're all tightly sealed to this day. You know, in the old city of Jerusalem, there is a grave that is gaping open with a huge stone that has been rolled to one side of it. And according to many scholars, this is the traditional grave of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that would be very interesting, even if you weren't a believer, because there really are no other graves in the region that are standing open like that. If you wanted to open any other graves to see what was inside, well, they would just arrest you for it. It's illegal. You can't do that. But interestingly enough, this one is unique like that instead of being sealed like all of the others. And believe me, for all of these hundreds of years, those religious leaders and their Jewish successors have good reasons to be sure that it stayed sealed. And yet it's open. 
And that brings us to the conclusion of the story which every gospel writer includes. It is resurrection and then the commissioning of his followers. Three days later, Matthew 28, 1. After the Sabbath, it says, you've got these eyewitness accounts of people who see him alive. And when that first happened, did they believe that he was in his physical body when they saw him? Yes or no? No, they did not. In their fright, they actually thought they were seeing a ghost. Remember that? So he had to ask them for some physical food. And while he stood before them, Luke says that he ate it in their sight. Now, you just got to picture the scene. It's quite humorous to me, actually. All eyes are on this guy as his mouth is moving. They're watching him. And then they see his throat swallowing. I mean, they're all staring. They're like seagulls. They're all staring at him, eating. And then he invites them. Touch me. See. No spirit has flesh and bones as you see me have. And then these people were convinced, not by the empty tomb, interestingly enough. There's only one account of that when John goes in and he believes. But they were actually convinced by the sight of a resurrected person whom they knew was on the cross for six hours and whose body had been taken down and they wrapped it for burial and they put it in a tomb and a gigantic stone is rolled across the entrance and his enemies seal it and they guard it because they feared this deception being thrust upon the people. So after all that has happened, it's no wonder then that Matthew's gospel concludes in the way that it does. And it's the only gospel that records what the Lord said on this particular occasion in verses 18 to 20. These are verses I think that nearly any Christian has memorized to some degree. And I want to call your attention to the central word now in verse 18. It's the same word we've been tracing throughout the gospel. Uh, The first time we saw it, you remember, was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when it says that The people heard him as one having authority. In chapters 8 and 9, when he performed the miracles, the people marveled God had given him such authority. In chapter 10, verse 1, he invested that authority in his 12 followers. In chapter 22, when he's cleaning out the temple for the second time, the authorities come and they demand of him, well, who gave you this authority? After his resurrection from the dead, he stands before these people. And by the way, I want to remind you that in the 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension, he never appeared even one time to any unbeliever. So think about the presentation of this person so widely, so openly, and confirmed by these amazing, miraculous experiences seen by thousands of people. And yet there's still so much doubt, so much debate. And he's just one of the prophets. And finally, the religious leaders themselves declare, well, this guy's guilty of blasphemy. He's blasphemous. All right, so now you've got withdrawing of revelation, 
withdrawing of light. Nobody but a previous believer now even gets to see the resurrected Christ. And on one of these occasions, he makes this claim, I have all of the authority out there in heaven and down here on earth. You know, we, we pass over those words in the Great Commission because we're so familiar with them. But I do want to remind you for just a moment of what this means so it will have a bigger impact on your spirit. Think, for example, of the universe. Here we are. uh, We're all living on this globe that is just hanging out there in space. We're kept in in place because the thing is spinning, right? But then you have the sun, which is over 100 times larger than the earth. But then you have the whole solar system spinning around, including Mercury, which goes around the sun every 88 days. And Pluto, on the other end, which takes 247 years to go around the sun. It has not been in the same place in the solar system since 1776, when they signed the Independence of Declaration in America. (laughs) Now, of course, we go around the sun every 365 days. 0.25 days. And I'm glad they figured out the extra quarter of a day because it means we we get a leap year every four years, right? We've also figured out that we should set our watches by the motions of these bodies. In fact, sometimes, you know, they add a fraction of a second to the anatomical clock in order to keep up with the timing of the spinning solar system. Well, Jesus has all authority in the heavens over all of that, including our speck of a solar system within the whole universe. And who knows how big that is. But then it says he has all authority in earth. So just think for a moment about all of the seas and the lakes and the islands and the deserts, many of them in our country and the mountains, and the waterfalls, and the rivers. You can find many, many interesting facts about the earth if you go looking online. For example, you will discover that there are about 6,000 kinds of mammals living on this planet. The largest mammal is what? The, huh? No, the elephant. (laughs) The blue whale. (laughs) The blue whale is actually a mammal. It's as long as my house and a half. So imagine swimming and meeting a house and a half underneath you. That's one mammal. The smallest mammal is a little bat in Thailand. It's about the size of a bumblebee. It weighs four grams. I don't know why God created that, except to say I can do this. Then you have all these thousands of species of birds. You know, somebody was flying in an airplane at about 25,000 feet. They look out the window, there's a goose. And he winked. No, he didn't. The highest flying bird is actually a griffin vulture. A griffin vulture can soar up to 37,000 feet. That's cruising altitude for a 747 on an international flight. Someone else was way down deep in a freshwater body at 50 meters, and they came across a loon. That's how high and low those birds can go. And what about all these insects? You know, they say there's 800,000 
kinds of insects. And they all visit my barbecue in the summer. They've got these things on earth that are one cell, uh, like an amoeba. And yet they say, I've got 107 million cells in my eye with which I look at that one cell. They say that I'm going to walk 100,000 kilometers in my lifetime, two and a half times around the earth. My Apple Watch is tracking it. (laughs) And if I walk my two and a half times around the earth and if I check out what's going on, I will see hundreds of nations and billions of people. There's over half a billion Buddhists on the earth today. There's three quarters of a billion of Hindus. There's over a billion Muslims. And Jesus is claiming, it's all mine. I have all the authority over all of that. Now, you go and you make followers out of them all, and you indoctrinate all of those individuals to observe all things. And what's the next word he uses? All things I have commanded you. You see that? Somebody is claiming to have rights over all of creation. Someone is claiming to be the Lord over all. The Lord over all is issuing His commands. Now, what assurance does He give us that He has that kind of authority? I mean, mean, why should you believe in Him? That's what the early church was confronted with when they scattered through the ancient world trying to obey His command to make followers. And on Mars Hill in Athens, before an audience of pagan skeptics, the Apostle Paul said to these guys, you know, fellas, you've got to understand this. He said, there is a living God, and He commands all men everywhere to repent. That is a command. You repent because He has appointed a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Well, who is that man whereof he has given assurance and that he raised that man from the dead? I mean, do we all understand that the ultimate thing you can do to an enemy is execute him? Yeah, but what if he comes back? What does that say about his claims? What what does that say about his authority? What does that say about his appointment as as judge? Matthew begins this gospel by presenting that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And he concludes his gospel with the proclamation that this individual is the Lord of all. Therefore, let all men and women everywhere Repent. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father in heaven, how grateful we are to to know these things and to see Matthew's presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. How blessed we are that we do have a sovereign who is over all. How wonderful to know the future. To know that we are His. To know that You have claimed us with His blood. Father, if there's anyone here who has not claimed the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, may you work in their heart today. We pray that you would strengthen us 
to go out at His command and preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, we just pray that the Lord Jesus would come quickly. And bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen.